my dad would cook for him and all the guides lived in this little we called it the mouse mahal i mean it was just a little rundown shack I'm kind of an addictive person if i ever get on drugs i feel like it's over <laughs> guys episode four uh appreciate you guys for tuning in hope you guys have enjoyed these uh these last couple this one we're switching gears a little bit we got clint man with us clint is known to a lot of folks in the in the dog world he is a dog trainer he's a manager at habitat flats kennels he has been doing this for a very long time and clint we're glad to have you here appreciate you for coming on thank you thank you fan of the podcast i'm glad to be here you know, both of us, Ira and I, both work with Clint, um, you know, daily slash weekly slash um, in several different capacities. But um, I think it'll be cool for us both and you guys to kind of hear Clint's story a little bit and maybe how his journey is, has unfolded from when he started to now. So, uh, like I said, we appreciate you tuning in and uh, we'll hop into it. First of all, Clint, what's uh, what's been going on? I know this weather is horrible here in central Missouri. What uh what have you guys been doing at the kennels these last couple of days and you know since duck season's been over rather right so you know weather in missouri um changes a lot it can go from freezing to 60 um from day to day so we just try to plan on what we do by the weather so just kind of you know get, get on your weather app kind of look at the forecast see what days you can train outside see what days you're going to be stuck inside um, try to get as much field work done on the nice days, um, and then on the on the on the bad days, we're inside in the heated kennels, just doing obedience and force fetch and things like that. So, um, just kind of playing the weather right now. You could be outside, you know, doing training drills outside. And today, uh, about all you can do is uh, force fetch on snowballs. Right. It it's kind of crazy, you know. I know Clint. Where? Before we get into kind of your story, where are some of the places you used to be in the winter? I know, I know some winters you'd be you'd be headed way out and about. Where'd you used to go? So I spent most of my winter trips down by Anderson, Texas, um, which is probably an hour northwest of Houston. Um, and then I spent some winter trips um, northeast of Dallas too. And before I switched to Anderson, and yeah, it's a lot different when you're used to. Uh, you know, kind of being a snowbird and kind of getting out of here. And uh, when you're used to being going on going full blast this time of year and you, the last couple of winters, we've stayed back and um, it's kind of been a little bit change of pace and, you know, and the, the snow and the cold, man, kind of gets depressing after a while. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Ready for it to warm up. Welcome back to reality, bud. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna, we're not going to have any, uh, any any soft gun dogs for God's sakes? They're gonna have to tough these winters out. Only the strong right. survive. Can't pick up a duck in three degree weather, then you can't pick up one at all. That's uh, right, man. So Clint, so obviously we're working backwards here, but you're at Habitat Flats Kennels, your kennel manager there, head trainer. But before we get into kind of some of the the mechanics and the different questions we've got for you about dog training, why don't you take us back to kind of how you got started? And I know. It wasn't like you just started training training labs and high performance duck dogs right off the bat. I know you you got into um, I know you guys were training dogs that did all sorts of stuff and and you have a cool hunting kind of a hunting background. So from five year old Clint Mann or whatever age it was, 
take us through kind of how that fascination with dogs started. Was it something that you did all the way through? Did you take a break? Did you, how did that unfold? Right. Let's see. Um, so I'll just get started. Um, I lived in a small town in Northeast Missouri, Philadelphia, Missouri. Um, my dad is, was in all kinds of dogs. He had, um, he had coon hounds, he had coyote hounds, he had bird dogs that he ran into field trials. So I was kind of thrown right in it. Um, my dad had dogs for a different reason. He was strictly like a houndsman. You know, I, I can count on one hand how many times I've actually watched my dad pet a dog. Um, you know, so a lot of those got, you know, it's not that way anymore. Um, but so I was raised in the hound world, you know, we were always trying to find the best dogs we could to, to breed and, and try to make that breed better. And um, same way with the bird dogs, you know, we were strictly looking for dogs that could perform and, and do what we wanted them to do. You know, they weren't our house pets. Um, so that's how I was kind of brought up into dogs. You know, um, my dad competed in bird dog field trials and, you know, he was there to win. Um, and, um, I just kind of watched him for a while and I was really into it as a kid. I loved going and, you know, kind of like Ira's kid, I got into basketball, um, real hard as, you know, as a teenager and kind of set the, set the dogs back a little bit. And then as I got late into high school, I started to get back into bird dogs and, um, and started running some competition coon hounds. And so I've kind of done it all and dabbled in all of it. And, um, kind of like Rob Roberts said, um, duck hunters are the most obsessed hunters in the market. So, um, kind of started the lab thing when we started duck hunting, when the quail kind of died out in Missouri and, um, started seeing that there was professional trainers in that market, you know, that actually made money. Um, and so kind of started veering that route, started running some hunt tests and, um, I think I was 19 running a hunt test in Cape Girardeau and I watched um, Lyle Steinman pull up in a brand new truck with a 16 hole trailer, you know, and, and there I said to myself, that's, that's what I'm going to do. That's, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to be and have never really looked back. Um, so basically went to work for him and worked for him for about six years and kind of went out on my own and here we are. So basically you went from, you're saying your dad's a houndsman. So basically you went from the hell's angels of dog training to uh, riding a riding a high performance mountain bike on the Katy Trail. Like you took her, you took her from one extreme as far as like one strain, and and kind of took some of those principles and and went a completely different route. So you know we we used dogs for a purpose. We really never had dogs that were mediocre. We you know they weren't really part of our family at that point. Um, you know I never had a dog that I was really like attached to. You know they were always buying and selling and kind of doing that sort of thing and um and then when I got I had a lab called Penny which was like the first dog that I ran in some field trials some hunt tests and um and then that was the dog that I got attached to and that's when it all changed so I'm young but pretty fresh out of school and in Higginsville there are a bunch of guys with hounds that would uh would chase coyotes you know they'd go and and chase coyotes all through the walking dog Carrollton bottoms everywhere through there so you know these town guys they uh they're kind of like horse traders you know they're 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 wheeler dealers and semi full of shit about no 97.5 percent of the time and the guy comes in and uh, i'm a young vet and, and he knows that and he says 
He says, God dang, boy, this dog here, I think he's got a broken leg. I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, this is a high-dollar dog, son. Uh, you better fix this and, and don't, don't screw up. And I said, well, uh, okay, uh, I'm going to need to take an x-ray. He goes, well, you can tell the leg's broken. I said, well, yeah, but, but, uh, but I need to take an x-ray. And he goes, well, don't mess up this dog. This dog's worth about $5,000. And I said, oh, my, okay, well, uh, let's get an x-ray and see what we got. And so we get an x-ray, and, I mean, it's all jacked up. And so I say to him, I said, man, you know, it's going to be tough to fix. You know, you're probably looking at about three or four or five grand to have this all plated and put back together or you know, we could try an external fixator here. No big time promises, you know, but I'd be, that's be, you know, close to seven, eight hundred, maybe a thousand dollars by the time it's all said and done. He goes, God damn boy. He goes, put that some bitch to sleep. And I said, what do you mean? Put him to sleep. He goes, put him to sleep. I said, why? He goes, that is too much money. And I said, well, you just told me that the dog was worth $5,000. He goes, well, that's what old Fred on the side of the river said, but put this damn dog to sleep. We're not going to talk about this anymore. We I could have been my dad. <laughs> we put it to sleep, and I'm sure he went and grabbed another one off the side of the road somewhere and on their way facing coyotes or whatever they were. Probably just an excuse to drink beer, which I get that part of it. You don't necessarily have to go and highlight all these dogs, but talk about the connection that hunters especially – have with their dog and you can speak from experience uh yeah i mean you know hunters they love their dogs i mean dogs are relative just kind of like a lot of things in life and uh everybody thinks they have a great dog most of the time and some are better than others but every hunter you know really enjoys well, the majority of them, the time that they spend in the field with their dog and they, and they overlook some of their dog's shortcomings and probably overblow some of the things their dog's pretty good at. Um, I don't remember how many retrievers I've had, but it's been quite a few. Um, geez, we had Dixie and, and then there was Slack. It was a Chesapeake. Um, yeah, no, he, he was a, he was a Chesapeake through through every, every, uh, every step of the word, you know, one thing about Chessies that I think is, is pretty consistent is that they go harder than any dog and they come back softer than any dog for the most part. I mean, they're hard on the go and soft on the comeback, but, uh, and then I've had a few, you know, I think since him, every dog I've had has been a black female and, uh, you know, I had one, we called her Breaking Maisie, and she came by that name. Honestly, she she was pretty wired, pretty tight, and I was, uh, you know, I'd let her get away with some things, and, and uh, that wasn't always the best. And then the uh, last two have been really good, but, but you love them all, you know, and, and uh, you, learn to, uh, you learn to help them out with their places where, you know, they aren't necessarily the strongest. And, uh, and I think I, as a, as a handler, owner i've learned a lot over time so cash you know she's she's probably as good as any of them that i've had except for maybe sadie and she's still young but but i think i've been a little more fair to her and definitely given her a, a better shake than i did dogs of the past and i'd say that's probably i bet it's pretty normal you know those guys get more experience they they learn that you don't just you know paint with one brush and uh 
you know, think that one way is the only way to do everything. You, you kind of, you know, learn more and, and open both eyes more and kind of see things coming and, and have better tools in your toolbox to, to know what's going to happen. And, and, and you can reach out, you know, you have more people to reach out to when you're struggling and ask for advice too. A hundred percent. I think that you might've hit the nail on the head there towards the end. I, I don't know when I get done, hopefully I got a few more dogs ahead of me in a few more years, but I bet you a lot of folks could look back and, and, the dogs they had that were the best and the worst and, and everything in between might've had more to do with them than the dog in some of the situations. Clint. So, so we're talking about this Ira and I from a, you know, vocational slash recreational standpoint. I mean, I was, you know, gotten in, in the hunting industry and guiding and all that stuff, but, but you, I mean, your, your connection with dogs and your, and your interest in dogs and all that stuff. I feel like it could probably be said just knowing how much you care about dogs that it, you know, it definitely drove you, and has propelled you into your career and, and throughout your career, but maybe I'm wrong there. Is it, is dog training you're, something that no, you, you're, you're totally right. You're totally right. 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 I mean, I feel like dog training is not something that you do just because you like to stand out there and blow your whistle and stand out in the cold and freeze your ass off and all that stuff. Like, I feel like, I feel like deep down you are driven with all of your dogs by a couple few that you have had yourself. You're totally right. So this, so I believe that, you know, not that long ago when humans, mankind was kind of in the hunter and hunter gatherer stage that dogs and humans relied. Well, I don't believe it's a fact dogs and humans relied on each other a lot to get food. So I think there's some biological evolved DNA that favors our companionship with dogs. And I think it can be explained. It's just hard to, um, it's hard to understand, like, it's hard to put into words how much we love our hunting dogs and we don't even know why, you know, it's like, we don't have this relationship with chickens or cows or really any other type of animal except for humans and dogs. That's it. But there's a lot of similarities between humans and dogs um, that people don't really even think about, um, you know, like pack hunting, they hunt as a pack, they communicate non-verbally you know the same as we did in the hunter gatherer stage you know we hunted in packs um lots of interesting facts you can go back to that time and, and you know if you study it a little bit and it kind of can explain you know why some of us feel like hey you know why we get so excited when a dog goes on point or why we get so excited when a dog barks at a coon or or you know a dog's chasing a coyote whatever um but i think there's you know DNA it's in our DNA um from back in those times and you know it's just something that spread into us it, it has to be I mean it, it you know I've never really thought of it that way but I mean think of some of the stuff I mean I know personally that I've been I've been swimming for both of my dogs in in colder water than I'd ever get in for anybody any person minus maybe one or two um it's just weird what it's weird what you what you'll do for your dog or with your dog that you wouldn't, you don't even question at the time, you know, it's just, you just do it because it, like you said, it, it's almost like there's something more than there's more of a connection there than what we think about. Well, if you think about it, humans aren't really amazing animals. Like we can't smell very good. You know, we don't hear that well. We're not that fast. We don't have sharp teeth. We don't have thick fur. Our, you know, we don't have, 
some of the things you would think that we would have needed to survive back in that time period. But everything that we don't have, a dog does. It's like the eyesight, we, they can smell good, they're fast. So, you know, you go back to some of those times and hear some of those stories and how, you know, humans and dogs relied on each other. And it, it makes a lot of sense why we feel the way about our dogs that we do. Man, that's, I don't know, that's, that's interesting. So these, you saying that <clears throat> leads me in. So you, so you have your dog Penny and that kind of sounded like it was a big kind of a, I guess, a milestone of your dog training slash dog relationship, you know, all that stuff. So you, you go work for Lyle, <clears throat> you're there for, you said six years. At what point, what, what happens immediately after you went to work for Lyle? Did you, where did your journey go from that point? You know, um, I started running hot tests, you know, hot tests for him and kind of doing that thing. I was absolutely obsessed with it. Like I never felt like I had to go to work. I worked all the time and didn't mind it because I loved it so much. And um, I never really looked at it. You know, I didn't have anybody to care for at that point. You know, I didn't have a, a wife or kids or anything like that. So I never, all I had to do was make enough money to take care of myself. You know, at that point, I wasn't trying to you know, really thinking about the financial part of it. I just wanted to be training dogs and be learning as much as I can from these people. And I was just fascinated with it. I was fascinated with the, the communication level that you could have with some of these high-end retrievers. And, um, you know, and I just wanted to learn, learn, learn at that point, you know, and kind of still that way, you know, in some senses, but um, yeah. Is that where you is that where you started Cold Tree from? Is that when that kind of was born? Yeah. So after I got done working for Lyle, um, I went out on my own, moved back to my hometown, started Cold Tree Kennels, and it it took off, did well. Um, you know, met a lot of great people and trained a lot of great dogs there. And um, man, you know, I think I was there eight years since 2011 or so, and. Um, yeah, it was good, man. You know, right there on my family farm and, um, and, you know, just kind of had a small operation. I only could take in about 20 dogs. So that was kind of my max and, and did most of everything myself at that point. You know, most of the training part of it had some kennel help and some bird throwers. Um, but yeah. What was your, what percentage was the focus on field trial like if you had 20 dogs how many of those were just really field trial focused dogs versus something else probably like probably like eight to ten you know probably about half or a little less than half well so clint you, your business has kind of started a little bit like mine that i've started it's been like it's a little bit different from ira i feel like because like when you and me both it's like there's a passion or a drive to do something almost, you know, over the top and just love doing it. But we were both kind of able to start our businesses. It's pretty low budget, especially with you using family land. And, you know, I've lived in the houses falling in, like trying to get stuff started. And, you know, so we're kind of low barrier to entry. It was more of a skill set that you were able to kind of capitalize on and, and kind of fake it till you make it in my, in my instance and learn as you go. I mean, I, I feel like you starting out, you obviously your skill sets what what you know makes it happen but 
I think some of the funny stories that I've heard you and Aaron talk about is like getting your stuff started. I mean, when you started your own business, it's a big difference between I'm a vet to I own a vet clinic. So, you know, Clint saying that has made me think about some of your stories about how when it started, how things were pretty, uh, margins seemed to be pretty thin and the, and the salary was pretty non-existent at times. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, when you, when you open a veterinary clinic, there's, there's a lot of costs and the overhead's high. And, uh, you know, there's some, there's some ways the drug companies and the vendors try and give you a little bit of a hand, but all that really does is prolong the pain, but at least it allows you to make it, you know, in the beginning. Um, but you know, like, Let's just look at Momarsh. I mean, for a long time, there wasn't a whole lot of startup, you know, and I didn't need any money out of it. So every penny I made, I'd roll right back in. But, you know, I'd drive down to Coal Camp, Missouri and buy, you know, five gallon jugs of resin and hardener and mold release and, you know, rolls of fiberglass and build boats hoping that I could break even and maybe spin one off for myself or a friend or something, you know, and did that for a long time. Then even if you look at Habitat Flats, I mean, geez, none of us took a salary out of that business for a long time. You know, we put every penny back into it. And and ultimately that's what allows business to be successful. You know, if you if you open a business and you say, well, I deserve a hundred thousand dollars because whatever your justification is, well, good luck. Hope, hope, hope it makes it without, you know, killing the business before it kills you. But, you know, I mean, there's, when, when you have a startup, you just do what you have to, to treat it like a baby and take care of it until it can turn around and start taking care of you. And that's just kind of the nature of how those things go. Uh, the scale is different. I mean, you know, sometimes you're talking about, you know, two figures or three figures or six figures or, 10 figures or whatever, but startup still startup, you know, it's still, it's still probably going to lose money for a little while. That I feel like that's where it's, that's where, although they're all different, I feel like that's where it's all similar. Like I, you know, Clint, I bet you've got some, like some of the stuff you are doing at HFK now and you look back and you're like, man, I used to do it this way and laugh. I mean, I, I'm sitting here. Yeah, yeah, no idea. <laughs> I'm sitting. I'm sitting in my office um, right now, which is nothing special. But whenever I started out doing media stuff and doing commercials for people, I'd get up at you know four four thirty in the morning, whatever, and I would go in our room, and we we had nowhere to go at my house, and I would cover up with a black sheet, and I would sit there in the corner, <laughs> not to wake my wife up, and I would sit in there and do like I would type up all these proposals and make all these videos, and I would have. Um, I would just turn the sound down because I didn't even have earphones at that time. And I would sit there and she'd wake up, you know, once or twice a week, she'd wake up and be like, God, God you know, and I don't blame her. But just looking at that and, and being under that sheet, that's why people were like, man, it's hard to breathe in these masks for COVID. It's like, well, one, I didn't wear them often, but I, I've been breathing through freaking, you know, 300 silk count for thread count for, for years. It's nothing to me. Um, and Joe, Joe breaks out of a packing blanket. <laughs> Hey, desperate times, bud. That was like a room add-on. You put a blanket over you, and you feel like you're like, damn, welcome to my office. I've got a double-wide blanket. Uh, but, you know, Joe, that's great. I'm, I'm joking, but but that's – I mean, that's that's pretty cool. It's true. It's all true, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, Clint, I bet, you, I bet you've got some of those too, though. I guarantee it. Man, man, 
and most of like my horror stories are from Texas because at that point, you know, it used to be no dog trainers went to Texas. You know, you all everybody stayed back here, and then if you're a ribbon chaser, it got to the point where you had to be down there. So if you're, you know, like one of the guys like I was, I wasn't one of the big names. You know, I, I was just trying to make it with the trial dogs that I had, and you know, and and just make enough money to get by and do what I loved. You know, and um, I mean, there's times where I stayed in like. FEMA trailers down there, you know, I mean, man, that had no heat, you know, um, just, just dirt floor poor, you know, just try, like you said, faking it till you make it, you know, I would, but I still had money. I didn't have any money for food, but I had money for entry fees and you know, the dog food, the things with it that were important. And, uh, you just kind of make it happen, you know, um, and like you said, take it till you make it. Just uh, just grind, 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 and and uh, it'll get better. <laughs> Hopefully, the, I guarantee you. I I guarantee you on some of them Texas deals. I'm just thinking right now because it's like I still have a lot of these now, but I had a bunch of them before. It's like you get in a situation, you're looking around, you're like, what in the hell is even going on? What? <laughs> right. What's wrong with this picture? Why so am one time. I here? What? So one time I'll tell this quick story. I, um, I was leaving for a winter trip. It was right after Christmas. I wasn't supposed to leave until like Sunday, but a big ice storm was coming in. So I was trying to get going before it hit. So I had driven all night and, um, was headed down there and I'd never seen the place I was renting before. This is a new place and a property. And I showed up and there was a FEMA trailer that was about, you know, an inch high and, and rat turds. And um, I think I got there at like 11 o'clock at night after driving all day. It was, you know, 14, 15 hour drive. By the time you stop and let 16 dogs out three times, you know, it turns into a 20 hour drive. And I get down there and I let my dog, you know, all I want to do is just go in there and go to bed. And I open the trailer door and my dog runs in and, and my dog Gus, who was a puppy at that time, grabbed a, a big mouthful of, of mice killer. And so here I am at 11 o'clock running back to a Walmart that's 30 minutes away to get some peroxide to make him throw up. And, and that was one of those times where I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this to myself? And, and, it, it, it can be, it can be tough to find any kind of direction during the, like, like, you know why you're there and you know what you're doing, but it's pretty easy to, I guess the way I'm built is just like, I'm just going to double down on the stupidity. So if I feel like I'm doing good enough to be in this situation, uh, Clint, so, so you got cold tree there, it's rolling, whatever, everything's going good. And I'm not, you know, don't feel like you got to say anything because Ira's on here, but you know, there's benefits, there's, there's pros and cons to everything. So you go to cold tree, you build that business up. It was like Ira with Mo Marsh. It's like, we talked about this last week. It's like you build your business up to a certain level you do it your way. It's got your feel to it. It's got your style, you know, and this is, this is my thing. This is, it's not just your business. It's kind of you, you know? And, uh, and then, and like Ira did with Mo Marsh, it's like you build, you grind, you create, and then you see an opportunity like Habitat Flats Kennels, which I'll say the same for Mo Marsh. It still has a lot of Ira's DNA in it. And obviously Habitat Flats Kennels has a huge amount of your DNA in it with what you're doing and, and the nature of how it goes. But Talk about seeing that opportunity, Clint, and then and then talk about, you know, because I feel like a lot of folks are going to hit a point in their career where if they're what they're doing works, they're going to be faced with an opportunity. And not that you're going to say one way is right or wrong, but talk about talk about the the pros of taking that next step and some of the things that have been 
that have been difficult as as far as kind of changing up the program of how you had it running? Yeah, you know, um, you know, like you said, sometimes it's sometimes the grind is the fun part. And it took about five years probably to start making money at Coultry. And then once I did, everything kind of got easy. And um, sometimes, sometimes the struggle is kind of what drives me, you know, or, or the, I like stuff to be hard and it got easy. And I kind of just was kind of ready for a new challenge with something. Um, it was kind of the point where I was going to either have to expand that business or do something different, move somewhere. Um, open up a try to open up a bigger operation and the timing kind of worked out where they were kind of looking to do something at that time and um, kind of like Jason said in, in the previous podcast um, you know great people Ira Aaron Tony Dan I mean couldn't ask for a um, better group of guys to kind of get involved with and uh, you know they hit me up and I was really interested and and uh, we put some plans together and, and kind of here we are. It had to be a little bit bittersweet. Oh, for sure, man. For sure. You know, when you put that much time and effort into something and, and, you know, you, I was right there on my family farm, um, which like, we still own. Um, but I was, you know, right there where my, my grandma grew up, you know, so that was pretty special. So that was probably the hardest part of, of just, you know, moving, you know, and I'm not that far away. I'm only an hour and a half from where Coultry was. Um, but just kind of leaving the family farm, leaving the hometown, you know, was, was kind of tough. Um, yeah, you know, when you like Ira with Momarsh, you know, when you build something, it's kind of hard, hard to let it go. Um, but sometimes to make progress and, and move forward, you, you know, you to make, take, have to take a chance and, and go for it. Well, then Ira, on the flip side of that, you got a guy like Clint, you can see that he's, you know, He's a dog trainer that that you knew or knew of and, and all the above. But, I mean, it has to be a little bit – it has to be a little bit nerve-wracking as the guy on the other side for once that's doing the, quote, kind of acquiring slash being the, being the company that's bringing a key guy on like that. So, I mean, from you, from starting the kennels business from the, from the HF standpoint, I mean, talk about a little – a few of the risks that – that go in with that. I mean, you had a lot of capital expenditures. You got a lot of money out of, out of pocket. You got a, a big risk and, and talk about how you identify somebody to roll the dice with and kind of what that process is like. Well, I mean, the biggest thing is that uh, money and, and all of that aside, I mean, Tony and I've talked about this and what our, thoughts and goals and desires and how we wanted, you know, how we wanted to be different. I had clear, I had a clear path and a clear product in my mind and how, and vision for how I wanted to get there and all that. But it's, it's real different and it's the same in this situation. So it's the same in the regard that you're only as good as your team, right? You got to have a good team. It's different in that, I mean, with a veterinary clinic, Okay, I'm the veterinarian. With a hunting business, okay, if the if the wheels fall off the cart, I can always go guide again. Um, you know, with uh, a lot of businesses, the the owner or the person that you know, the people that kind of have the business idea and how they want it to go and all that stuff can pick up the pieces and make it fly. But 
none of us are dog trainers. So we had to put a lot of faith into the person that we were going to hire to be, you know, the head trainer because none of us were going to be a dog trainer. I mean, we train our own dogs, sure, but I'm not going to take someone's money to go and be a dog trainer if, you know, we have a bad dog trainer or things aren't working out or whatever. We'd have to find someone else or send the dogs home um, because that's just not in our wheelhouse. So, you know, we did have to have a lot of faith, and we still do in Clint because uh, anyway, slice it, he's got to be the man because, uh, you know, if it's, if it's not him, well, it's not going to be me. I mean, maybe I can limp it along for, you know, three or four days, but yeah. <laughs> I have to find somebody else that's a, that's a bona fide dog trainer. And we needed somebody with some street cred, right? I mean, we couldn't just go getting somebody that, that you know, nobody knew, didn't have any credentials, um, that stuff, you know, we were bringing some things to the table with the value associated with the name of our brand and the hunting world and all that. But we needed a trainer that was somebody who was, you know, bringing the credentials on that side of it as well. So, you know, it, it, we were lucky to uh, to team up with Clint and, and have that opportunity to, you know, put him in the position to, to be the guy that was in charge. And, uh, man, it's just like we talked talk about its recurring theme um you know your team's very important and then anytime you're talking about a new business a new startup man there's there's struggles across the board um you know just think about it when you change jobs even if it's even if it's being a veterinarian which you've done for 20 years and you're going to go do relief work at a clinic down the street all right well there's still some hiccups and some anxiety and all that associated with something so simple as that. So, you know, I mean, when we're talking about Clint moving from Philadelphia and walking away from his business that he's built over time and coming into our deal and all, you know, there've been a few hiccups and honestly, that's expected, right? And so it's all, it's all going great and I feel like it's getting better and I'm really looking forward to this next year. I think it's going to be Awesome, not just from a dog standpoint, but all the other stuff that, that you know, Clint and our team, we've all planned together. And, uh, man, I think, I mean, I'm really excited for this year for the kennel shooting business, probably more than anything else I've going on. I mean, I think it's just, it, it, it should be something that really turns out to be a cool deal. To, to me, you know, you hear everybody that <clears throat> I, I'm using this, term broadly but people that have a nine to five job they're always like man I, you know so and so it took some that took some courage for so and so to step aside and, and start their own business or to leave the comfort of working for somebody else and going and starting their own business in jason's case and in in clint's case jason's case last week and in clint's case this week i'm gonna venture to say that it's even tougher when you have a business that's going great and you're as eric reinhardt says you want to be the man you got to be the man when you're the guy doing it for yourself and that's all you got to worry about when you, and you've got a business that's working great. I think it's probably even tougher to do what Clint and Jason have done. Clint taking a business that he created and instead of jumping off the diving board into, into going full force into your own thing, 
he's like jumping off the diving board and he doesn't know what's there because he's got to put a lot of faith in you guys. He's got a lot of unknowns. And to me, it would be tough making that career change. Even if you are leveling up, Clint, that had to be a little bit of a readjustment period, just like changing that mindset a little bit. You're still obviously managing and making a lot of decisions and, and have a lot of the same principles, but the, the transition just had to be a little bit different kind of in your mind too. For sure. I mean, anytime you, you know, anytime you change something, you know, there's going to be like how I said, struggles and things you're learning, but I think, you know, uh, you know, one of the all time greatest retriever trainers of all time was named Rex Carr. He was from California. He was like the guy who invented the electronic collar, you know, and taught us all how to use it. And a lot of the things we still do today, you know, are just basically transformations from what he did. But he had a saying, and he always said that, like, attitude is everything in people and retrievers. And, you know, so it's, I can look at it two different ways. I can look at the struggles and, you know, and, you know, complain about it or we can do something to change it keep a good attitude and you know keep the in mind in end goal in mind you know of, of what we want this place to be and um because i think me and all the guys at habitat flats and we know this place can be pretty special um we got some awesome things going on this year um some add-ons like the the shooting you know part of it is is we're up and up that game so um, yeah, I mean, just really try to look at everything with a positive attitude and, you know, keep the end goal in mind and, you know. And, you know, this for me is in what I'm saying is in no way saying like, I mean, when you pull, you know, if you guys pull, it, listeners, if you pull into Habitat Flats right now, you're going to see something incredible. You know, you're going to see incredible infrastructure, the design the layout of the place dogs work and training going on so it's not in any case to say like oh well what can you do better you boy you know we've had a lot of struggles it's like no i'm talking about just clint's mindset of going from the guy the only guy to getting in with a team to further the mission that's just a different mindset so when he's talking about struggles you know and whatever i'm not saying anything about his business and their business now i'm i'm merely talking about his personal you know kind of mindset uh you know in when you pull into the kennels it's pretty cool to see what's going on it's a i say it's a it's it's i'm not saying it's a circus but it's like a three ring circus it's like you look over and this guy's doing that and you're like oh hell yeah they're they're doing this with this age dog and then you look at this guy and he's doing that and then you look at clinton he's doing that and it, it's so much going on and i think when you see a business take a transformation like what clint did through cold tree and channel on that into hfk you know you can see the people and see what their passion is. And Clint, you know, he might've been training for 80 straight days up at Habitat Flats Kennels. He might be low on sleep. He might be dealing with a bunch of administrative, you know, stuff going on that, you know, paychecks and everything else that goes along with running a bigger business. But, you know, I, it's not something me and Clint talk about all the time, but I'll look over there and Clint will see a dog take a, a cast a certain way or whatever. To me, I'm standing there like, oh, I have no clue what just happened. But Clint will get like, I get like whenever I'm, find an arrowhead or, or get a big bunch of ducks in there. It's like, he gets so excited. Like he starts almost, I don't know, Clint, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like, he gets like so excited. He almost starts shaking. He starts talking like excited. And it's like, you can just tell that every day when you see that, it's like, this guy is definitely doing the right thing. You know, no, no matter what's going on in business, this guy is definitely doing the right thing. It's, it's just, it is kind of cool to see that.
like there's some certain things I think that like like a mallard cupping into a decoy or like a turkey goblin at 60 yards or like that kind of take our mind off of all the the things that are going on on the media or in our country or whatever you know and kind of put us in that moment and for me dog training kind of does that so like when it's not hunting season um I can kind of do it all year round and it gives me the same feeling like being at that high level of communication with a nonverbal, you know, animal um, that I can communicate with nonverbally and, you know, accomplish a task with them. It's um, man, it really gets me going, you know, there's just something about it. And like I said, it's hard to explain. Um, it's one of those things that like you can watch it on TV and you really don't get it, you know, um, but until you actually do it, you know, until you actually, somebody can tell you about a pointing dog all day long until you actually see one lock up on a quail with its leg up, you know, you just don't get it. Um, so it's, not, it's, it's the, and you can tell the guys doing the right thing. It's not manufactured excitement. It's like, it's like over and over again. It's like, that's what we're working for. And it's fun to, it's fun to watch. And it's fun to see kind of, I don't know. It's just fun to see anybody doing something that they really enjoy and that they can do well. I know, you know, one thing that stuck out to me, we're up there working on some stuff at the kennels and you and I were working on some stuff and Logan was training a dog and he was having, you know, a couple, he was like, man, I'm not sure what to do here. You know, there was a dog and Clint took the dog, went in there and, you know, it was that Clint, you remember it was that dog that was really being kind of timid and was just kind of not showing any kind of drive. And I'm, I'm not describing this right. I don't know what kind of harness apparatus bullshit Clint had rigged up, but he, when I went in there five minutes later, he had ropes rigged up around the kennels and he had all sorts of stuff going on. Looked like a team towhead <laughs> going on under the water at team towhead on their decoys. Like there was stuff going on everywhere. And anyways, he had the pressure applied at certain points and was using the commands in certain ways. And that dog from in literally 15 minutes, it went from, it wouldn't even look at Clinton Logan to it was literally pawing the floor, trying to get, to what tasks they were trying to have it do. And so that kind of stuff to me is like, when I look at it, listen, I already know I'm not a dog trainer, but that kind of stuff just shows me how little I truly understand about it and why there are people that are professional that are, that are handling those tasks. That, that stuff's just cool to see. Clint, I need a, I need a sketch and a schematic on how the ropes go. And we're going to, we're going to incorporate that into my living room and I'm going to hook my wife and kids up to that deal. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can draw you something up. What you're doing with ropes in your room, that's a different kind of grind. We're going to keep that off this podcast, my guy. Well, one thing's for sure. It definitely got better results than I would get. If I tried that at my house, I would end up with a rope around their neck, and that'd be me. <laughs> uh, well, so, Clint, a couple questions, and some of these are from some listeners. Um, the birds. So, different you, you see different people with different ideas and i know it probably depends on several different things but you know with habitat flats being of the setup it is but even if it wasn't habitat flats you seem you have always used a lot of live birds correct yes yeah and how important do you feel like how much importance do you feel like that carries i think with certain dogs it's can make them or break them you know not all dogs love plastic you, you know you find a lot of these dogs that don't get too excited over a, a bumper but if you know if you pull a real bird out they'll kind of open up and, and get excited and get to a different level and um you know you may be able to train a couple dogs with birds 
that wouldn't have made it in another program if that guy was using all bumpers or plastic, you know. Um, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the retrieves we need the dogs to make are on birds that are, are crippled that we haven't made a good shot on. You know, they may be a snow goose that's walking around out there at 120 yards or a mallard that's that's diving and he's out of shotgun range and we can't walk, you know, through the water fast enough to get him or wade through the water fast enough. So, you know, the dogs have to be comfortable hunting down the cripples and, and, you know, those are a, a lot of the key birds that we need recovered, um, are crippled. So we, you know, we can get the dog really comfortable with birds and, and, um, for that sort. Oh yeah. Do, do you, here was another one we had, which I thought was interesting. They say, you know, that you hear the old saying, a dog's a lot like its owner. Um, do you do you do you buy into that any? I I feel like I I feel like I believe it a little bit. Do you, what do you think? I feel like I believe it quite a bit. Yeah, um, we see that a lot. You know, I mean, and it's definitely you know goes back to the to the hunter and gatherer age. You know, like certain we bred these dogs for certain characteristics, and like when they were starting to breed, you know how it all started is there's a thing called the Siberian fox experiment. So a guy was over there breeding silver foxes for fur, right? And he thought that it was easier to breed them and have litters, you know, because it was it was hard to catch the wild ones. So what he did is he would, you know, breed these silver foxes and he would put his hand in the box when they were young and he would get rid of the aggressive ones and keep the docile ones. And so what that did is after like 13 to 14 generations these foxes started to have floppy ears have spots have, their tail started to wag and they really started to you know like human interaction and um yeah i think that that that, that still has a lot to do with it you know the thing i love the most about rosie and respect the most about rosie is most people train their dog with single word command so sit here heal whatever joe is like he just has a conversation with rosie and rosie understands everything he says so most dogs you know you you talk to them like they're a person and they're like they you lose them immediately you have one word that's like he's joe be like now rosie you go over there at the truck and then get in it and then get in the back seat and then turn around and don't eat that sandwich that's sitting in the middle of the front seat, okay? And you can see Rosie, she follows every step of the way and does everything he says. And I'm like, that dog must be pretty smart to have an owner who talks to her like that and she does everything he asks. Right, like that goes back to, you know, the nonverbal communication that they're so good at. Like they're so good at picking up on our moves, whether we're happy or we're or sad, you know? So, <clears throat> A lot of, you know, that a lot, a lot of it's not the word. It's the it's the way you're presenting whatever word you're saying, you know, um, and they can pick up on, you know, whether you're happy, whether you're happy with them or, or mad at them or, or whatever the, the feeling might be. Well, here's one, Clint. Here's a question. Um, and Ira, this is why don't you guys both answer this one? Clint, you go first. Ira, you can go second. Um, so Jim Ronquist, great buddy of all of ours. Uh, he he asked the question. He said, in your opinion, what is the difference between a good hunting dog and a great hunting dog? What, where's that line and what is that line? You know, I compare it to just like athletes like Tom Brady, Michael Jordan. Um, the great dogs are the ones 
that continue to do things that the other dogs can't do. Um, whether that be mark a bird at 400 yards or, you know, run a tight line on a blind retrieve and, and not let anything affect the line. Um, just kind of the intangibles, you know, um, the stuff that you can't teach. You know, big fish, little bowl, um, big bowl, little fish. You know, there's always going to be a dog out there that's better. But a lot of that's situational, right? So, you know, you take like <clears throat> like Cash or Sadian, they're hunting the same areas, and they know what that duck's going to do. That I mean, they're going to get everyone. They are great dogs for where I hunt. You can bring pretty much any other dog to their wheelhouse, and they're going to do better, okay? But then you take them to that dog's world and it's going to whoop on, up on them and they're going to look like an idiot. And so I think that, you know, a lot of times we're viewing things through our eyeballs in our little part of the world. But we all got to realize that there's a huge world that's out there. And, you know, I mean, I think that, that unless you're really wanting to play a big game like field trial game or whatever, you know, for most of us, we our goal should be to be satisfied and happy with the dog that's a, a well-mannered hunting companion that can do the work and likes to do the work and that we can have an enjoyable experience in the field with it's not about for the vast majority of us is my dog better than dog that won the srs or whatever because that, that's just i mean it's like saying uh my kindergartner is going to grow up to be the next Michael Jordan. Okay, really? Or, I mean, it's just, it, it, there's never going to be the opportunity for that to start with. And so, I, I don't, I mean, I get the question. I appreciate the question. Um, but I think great is relative to the scope of what, what your world is and what the exposure is going to be. Right. Like, probably, you know, I would say, we were talking about my older dog, Penny, earlier. No, I consider her a great dog. Was she probably – I've had a billion dogs more talented since then that have better careers and one more, you know. But, you know, that was a dog that impacted my life the hardest. So, you know, it depends on what you call great or, or whatever. But, um, you know, that dog changed the course of my life and, you know, was like a member of the family. So um, there's all different types of great, right? So I was with a buddy of mine the, a little bit ago and uh, he, his dog was doing a little bit of whining. I mean, it's a very good friend. I'm not bashing anyone or anything else. And, and the dog was whining a little bit. And I mean, it wasn't annoying me at all. Like it was not a big deal. It's not, I mean, there I've hunted with some dogs in the past. Trust me that I'm, I'm like, I cannot believe this. This is unbelievable. This dog I could barely even hear, but it drove him crazy. And uh, he ended up taking the dog back to camp and said, that's it. I'm never hunting with this dog again. I'm getting a new dog. And, um, you know, that would not be the definition of great. Although, you know, I didn't think the dog was doing anything crazy inappropriate, but, uh, you know, different people have different triggers. And uh, that was obviously the litmus test of you're off the roster and you're never getting off the couch again. Clint, here's one. Chip Wagner, who three of us all know. Uh, what um, Chip asked, what is one of the biggest handling mistakes that you see hunters make with a finished dog? So I, I'm assuming he means, you know, a dog that's trained and ready to rock, 
whenever we're handling them in the field, what's, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see? Probably number one is going too fast. I mean, if we're talking finished dog, like running blinds, um, you know, people blow the whistle and before the dog's even turned around, you know, they've already gave the cast and before two or three times of that, the dog's already going on a little pilot and trying to find the bird on its own. Um, that's probably number one, you know, letting, letting things slide, you know, letting, you know, a little step out of the blinds slide or let a young dog or we're talking finished dog. So letting that finished dog, giving it a breaking correction and, you know, you probably don't want to walk out there and get the duck and then just going ahead and sending it anyway, rewarding bad, bad behavior. Um, but number one, I'm just going to say is going too fast, you know, sending the dog too fast, handling the dog too fast. When I, you know, what I tell people is like, when you blow the whistle, you know, at least count to five before you give a cast. Um, you know, if, if there's not a crippled duck down, there's no reason to, to send the dog, you know, as soon as the guns go off, you know, just wait a second and still the steadiness you know, slow down. Absolutely. Yeah. Along those lines, I mean, what I feel like I see is, you know, a lot of people don't hunt that much. And so they're excited and they're amped up. And so they're, you know, kind of screaming and, and not a hundred percent comfortable certain in what they're doing. And I think a lot of that bleeds over into some anxiety for the dog and, and sure. uh, you know, maybe they make a mistake here or there and then, you know, correct the dog for it. And then next thing you know, the dog's like, well, that was bad. I think this time I just won't go. I'll stay right here or whatever, you know, some variation along those lines. And, and, uh, I mean, Clint knows better than any of us, but that happens frequently where you, you take a dog, you know, into the field with someone that hadn't spent a whole lot of time giving that dog commands and there's a little miscommunication and the wheels just come right off. Right. Um, Clint, hunting-wise, let's let's change gear just a minute. Hunting-wise, um, how was your how was your hunting season this year? And and what did you see? Were you able to go with any kind of what were some of the highlights? Like, were you able to hunt with any of the dogs that that you trained, or did you mainly just hunt with Gus? Or what what were some highlights that you had this year, hunting-wise? Man, yeah, we had. I think it was a pretty good year. You know, I never hunted with like big groups of people. So most of the times I hunted with like two or three people. So it's not that hard to go out there, you know, sometimes and kill 12, 15 ducks. And I thought it was a pretty good year overall. Um, my buddy Cam Smith came up and, and hunted his dog Melly for the first time. And we shot a hybrid. That was pretty cool. A mallard widgeon. Um, had my, my friend Justin Barger came up and we hunted his dog Storm. She was 11, and um, it was kind of cool because we kind of she had um, I it was she had lymphoma, and um, we kind of knew it was going to be her last duck hunt, and she did awesome, man. It was one of the days we had like a little bit of skim ice around the hole, and she just looked like a rock star at age 11, and then she passed away a couple weeks ago. So it was kind of cool to to have a couple last good hunts with her and see her perform so well. Um, man, I had a lot of good hunts. I had a client come um, ross Baum with his dog Riggs, and he's one of our you know top dogs here at the kennel chocolate male and and man he just looked like a rock star you know the two days we hunted him um i don't know that's the part of it i love is just getting to hunt with some of the dogs that i train and you know building relationships with clients kind of 
outside of the kennel, I guess, you know, like building that hunting buddy relationship too, and, and kind of being able to help them coach them, you know, on their dog a little bit. And, um, I know one of those, got one to get of those days, Clint, that you had that we were hunting at our blind there at Mother Lodge. Uh, who were those guys? That was a freaking fun group. I don't know how the hunting was, but that was, I mean, I don't even know what was going on with the hunting because I was laughing the whole time I was there. Man, that was a fun couple of days. And the hunting was pretty slow. But so then were some of my dog trainer buddies from like around the country. Hunter Hastings, who's down in Texas. Um, Ray Voigt, who now works for Purina, who's from Minnesota. He, he was a, one of the top field trial pros in the country at one time. And Andrew Curtis, um, one of my other buddies, he's from Wisconsin, one of the best dog trainers in the country. And his Andrew's dad, Wayne, just got inducted into the Retriever Hall of Fame last weekend. So that's pretty cool. But man, just guys I've known for a long time and we've we've never really got to hunt together. So the only time we ever see each other is at field trials or when we're kind of working or competing against each other. Um, so it was nice to see those guys somewhere other than, you know, the office and um just get to spend some time with them and get to know them on like more of a personal level and like like you said we joked the whole time and laughed the whole time and man it was a hoot god they got i don't know who it was somebody had their duck call going and they were like i mean they were ripping this guy to shreds he was a great guy it seemed like but he got started and they were like all right so like yeah so here's he was like give me some advice i don't know which one was but he was blowing the duck call and it did not sound that bad, but we were talking about blowing cut down. So he was giving me his call. I tried it. Jason tried it, whatever, we're, whatever. And whoever it was was like, all right. Uh, he goes, go ahead and blow it again. So the guy blows the call and got done. He goes, I'm going to tell you, bud, take two weeks <laughs> off and then quit all together. I'm not, when he said it, it rolled off his tongue. I laughed. God, I thought I was going to go down. I was laughing so hard. Oh man, he is a riot. Ray that works for Purina, man, he's a he's a hoot. Well, so th that was like for me, that was one of the that comment was one of my um, was one of my highlights of Doug's season. Yeah, he was like, man, take two weeks off. Here's what you do: you take two weeks off, and, and then just go ahead and quit, quit completely. Um, <laughs> right. I was, still use that to this day. It was. I promise, <laughs> I'm gonna get it on a t-shirt. Um, plant some of your some of your and i know you probably got a bunch but who are a couple of your inspirations whether it be in in the business world or in the dog training world who is a couple guys or, or gals that have stuck out to you um and, and still do oh i mean in the dog world um just training wise definitely like bobby george he was a missouri guy um somebody taught me a lot i could always um you know pick up the phone and call him and he would answer any question i had and take time and and um let's see here probably definitely bobby um you know like i worked for lyle steinman for a long time he taught me a lot about dog training and business and you know appreciate him a lot um you know, business-wise, um, been here in Missouri, got to watch Ira and Tony and them do their thing with HF. So that's always kind of, you know, been somebody to look at a little bit and kind of try to do what they do. And, and um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Good ones. And then and then hit on hit on your team a little bit, Clint. Uh, what At HFK, um, who are some of the folks there at HFK that, that you're working, that are working for you, but, but also with you to kind of keep that ship, uh, churning. 
Yeah, got uh, Logan Van. He's an Alabama boy. Um, recruited him up here, and uh, he's been doing real well for us, and I think really enjoying the, the Missouri hunting up here. Um, and we got Lauren. She's in the office, answers the phone, and, and takes reservations for training, things like that. Um, got Sue George. She does our puppy training. Um, and we got uh, Dennis and Teresa who are kennel help and training assistants and really appreciate them as well. But we have a, a great team right now. And like Ira said, we're pretty excited about the upcoming year. I feel like we got the right help in place and um, really rolling. So. Hell yeah, I know Ira, I know Ira's excited about that too. Well, finally, kind of what I want to lead or end off on is Clint. Um, we've had several questions like this, but you know, maybe maybe you're getting a new dog, or maybe it's your first dog. Um, both of you guys can answer this one. Actually, let's start with you, Ira. You're getting a new dog, or it's your first dog, whatever. What would you tell that guy who's wanting to hunt with his dog? And they want it to be a good dog, and they want to have a great experience, they don't know what to do, you know they're going to get it trained or they're going to train it themselves, whatever the case may be. What, what's some advice you would give that person starting out on that journey with their dog? Well, just like with the rest of life, you put one foot in front of the other and you walk before you run. So everybody always wants to throw the tennis ball down the hall and get a retrieve. And all. Okay. Whatever. But the bottom line is that, just like with most of life, obedience is your, that's your foundation, man. So you got to lay your foundation before you do anything else. And you can take all the sock throwing and tennis ball throwing and chasing birds and all that. To me, it's very important that a dog learns to have a place where it can have an off button. I'm a big believer in that. That's part of the reason that Momarsh has several different products that, that, uh, that reinforce that and you can use them in the house in the field at duck camp and in your truck, wherever. Um, but I feel like that's a really important part of the foundation that's being built. And then obviously, right. And then obviously um, just basic obedience, man, that's where it all begins. I mean, there's no reason I see people and, and it turns out to me, the people that you see yelling at their dog here, yelling at their dog to sit, saying their dog's name over and over again, giving the command, yelling it. They're generally the people with the least obedient dogs. And uh, they probably, you know, didn't take the time to really instill that obedience foundation in the dog when it was a puppy with just simple commands and not raising their voice. And so that's where it all begins, man. Everybody wants to be the first one to win the race. But what you really need to be worrying about is building building that foundation and then going from there. Clint, what about you? What would you leave? You know, people listen to this, kind of heard about your journey through it, um, journey to it. What uh, what would you leave people with there on, you know, they're listening to you, how you did your deal and how you've got your start. You've got a lot of years of experience. It's, it's a cool story, but, you know, it's not just a story. There's a lot of knowledge there. So, what, what would you say? Would you, would you copy what Ira said? Would you add something to it? How would you phrase it? Yeah, I would say what Ira said, you know, obedience, obedience, obedience. Um, but if we're talking like puppy, you know, before formal training, I would say just developing a relationship, you know, um, making that puppy or dog feel like it's part of the family, you know, it's got to know boundaries, um, you know, and you got to enforce those boundaries, but really, you know, just 
that puppy is going to, if you want the type of dog that a lot of us want, you know, if you want a, a Rosie or a Sadie, you know, that, that dog almost has to think he's a human, you know, or she's a human, you, she, you know, they have to be able to communicate with you in a nonverbal way very well. So, um, you know, I would, any way you can develop a positive relationship with the puppy, um, and, and create focus, you know, whether that be with a treat or, or whatever, you know, um, those are the things that I would worry about first would be just getting that puppy to love you, you know, it sounds pretty simple, um, but it's pretty important. And finally, you know, the people that are listening to this and they hear you, you talk and, and, and the stuff that you're saying and how you're saying it, if there's anybody that that's interested in, in the HFK side of things and they're you know, getting a dog or, or learning more about the program that you're running over there, um, what would you, you know, what are you looking for to Habitat Flats Kennels? You're looking for somebody to come to you that wants, you know, that wants fill in the blank and, and wants fill in the blank for their dog and on kind of what you guys are doing at HFK and what you're looking for and what kind of dogs you're building there. You know, what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do is just help people have that feeling and relationship that, that the four of us do or three of us do. Um, we, uh, you know, like we said, it's hard to explain unless you've actually done it. And so a lot of our clients, um, they might not have been raised with dogs their whole life. Like I have, you know, but they've got, you know, got onto their adult life and, and man, they're ready to get that, you know, that dog or that first dog. And it's hard if you haven't been raised around it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's something, it's not something that some people can catch on to right away. So, you know, our goal is to kind of be the middleman and, and help these people that haven't had dogs their whole life be responsible dog owners, be able to run that finished dog, you know, in front of their friends and, and be proud of it and um, just have a better relationship with the dog and, and really have that bond, you know, that, that bond that, that we know about, you know, and that some people don't know about. What I want to do is, you know, help them find that. And like I said earlier, man, I think, I think there's DNA bred into us that, that wants it, you know, and, and I think it can make us happier people. And um, like I said, man, I think that it's something that, that our DNA is striving for is that companionship with, with that animal. And um, I want, you know, I want to teach people about it and really want people to have success, whether they're have a hunting dog or hunt test dog or field trial dog. I just want to, you know, do what I can to, to make the relationships better. The cool thing about Clint's program that I, that I see the coolest part is, you know, you see HFK Habitat Flats Kennels, you're thinking gun dogs. And obviously that's the focus and, and uh, putting dogs in different situations to, and, and watching them succeed and preparing them. But the cool thing about going up to Habitat Flats Kennels, and I would encourage anybody that was interested just to go check it out. It's not, you know, it's not some hole in the wall that they're trying to hide from the public eye. I mean, it's something that is pretty cool and, and it shows really well when you go check it out, but you never know, you might be getting up there and there might be a professional athlete. There might be somebody who has been dog training their whole life. There might be somebody with the, with the damn off different breed dog. There might be, I mean, the one day I pulled up there and Clint was like negotiating for a Mizzou uh, softball sweatshirt with some of the ladies that were up there getting their dog. Like, I mean, it's literally all from the most serious, craziest dog fanatics to folks that 
have no idea how to start that journey. So I think it's cool how Habitat Flats kennels, you know, you think of Habitat Flats, you think of hardcore, serious, dialed in hunting stuff. And that's what I think of when I think of the hunting dogs that come out of there. But it's pretty cool seeing the variety of folks that you're working for and with up there. And, and it, prior stuff, I mean, he was pretty dialed in on like, um, you know, a heavy field crowd focus, a heavy end product focus and playing the game. Like he was the coach and he had his team and he had his athletes and all that stuff. That's the way I think about it. Clint, correct me if I'm wrong. And like for, for us, what I see on my end is I see guys that are duck hunters that a lot of them have no interest in doing hunt tests. A lot of them have no interest in doing field trials. They want a dog that can be their companion and that they can take to the field and not be embarrassed by and have it, you know, do a good job where, where they're, they think their dog's the greatest in the world, you know, in the arena that they're operating in. But a lot of them just, man, they're just, they just don't even know where to begin. Like they don't know where to get a puppy. They don't know who to talk to. They don't know anything about pedigrees and, and, you know, a lot of us, myself included, I mean, I don't sit down and look at pedigrees and study them and all that. I just kind of have been doing it so long. I know which dogs I like and don't and whatever, but um, I think that, you know, we're, we're kind of trying to, you know, still, still have the team that, that can go and play in the, in the big games, but, but also be there for the guy that, that, loves to hunt and wants a good dog and doesn't really have a whole lot of direction and comfort level there and get him to where, you know, he feels like he's comfortable handling the dog. The dog understands how to, how to operate and be driven and he knows how to drive the car and all that. So I don't know, Clint, I mean, do you, do you feel like that's a fair thing to say or. Man, I, I feel like you hit the, the nail on the head there. You know, that's kind of, was my background and and that's kind of something we're really striving toward now is just like you know helping the guy that that doesn't know where to go and you know hasn't wasn't raised running field trials you know his whole life and and but still wants to enjoy like still has a need for that bond that he's just started duck hunting and you know and it's really important right now that you know that we get more people into hunting, you know, like it always is. And, you know, we grow our community. Um, I think that's something that we all strive for. And um, we really want to help people, you know, just get started and get them on the right path and get them a good bred puppy that, you know, we think fits their needs. And, you know, whether they want the full training package or whether we, they want us to help them just start it. And, and then they want to take over from there. Um, just do the best we can to make sure it's a positive experience for them. Man. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, and, and we've talked about it in the podcast, but duck hunting is not a cheap sport, right? And so, I mean, a lot of people that are in our hunting community that are waterfowlers, they've got quite a bit of money. A lot of them don't have a good dog, and they're intimidated by the whole process, but they're dang sure never going to go to a hunt test. They're not, never going to go to a field trial. They have no interest. They don't have time for that, none of that but they want a good gun dog that they can take to their duck camp or their buddy's duck camp or you know, their lease or their hunting property or whatever. And you know, it may be one that just is obedient and doesn't, you know, doesn't bark at the ducks, or it may be one that really is a top level, top level dog 
Um, but, you know, I feel like in most of our dog training community, there's, there's a in focus for a title of some sort, you know, you're preparing that dog to to be successful in the hunt test world or, or the field trial world or whatever. And then there's this huge void of a guy that is a hunter that would happily spend the time and money on his dog to have a dog that was really good, but is never going to play the game. And uh, so uh, I don't know. I'm just hoping that we can help those guys and everybody else along the way as well. Well, I mean, what you guys are doing there, what you built there is awesome. Clint, your body of work is awesome. I, you know, all the dog training stuff aside, no matter if it's dog training or, or, or it's fixing lawnmowers, whatever it is, to me, it's cool to see somebody take something they really enjoy doing and do it for, you know, a couple decades and still visibly seem like they enjoy what they're doing. I mean, it's like dog training, you know, with, with the things that I worry about every day and think about in my career and everything else is, is, you know, is, is a hundred, that's a hundred percent of what I'm doing and dog training and thinking about my dog's obedience and such, that might be 10% of it. So, you know, when I see somebody like Clint, it's almost like a guy that's, you know, he's like, a, he's a, he's the guy at a ski resort. Like he's a ski instructor, but every day he's dealing with people that skills might not be the best that are, you know, it's like a teacher. It's like every day though, he's excited to continue to do that to me where I'm like, man, if I had to deal with me, I'd pull my hair out. But like every day Clint's like, you know, he's, he attacks every day. Like it's something that he really enjoys doing. So to see anybody do that, regardless of what it is, to me, that's inspiring. That's cool as hell. And, you know, man, Clint, I appreciate it. Like I said, I know I and I both do. Um, looking forward to seeing what what transpires at Habitat Flats Kennels this year and kind of how that unfolds. But, uh, man, I know we've kept you for long enough tonight. You got stuff to do. You got people to see and the kids and wife. But uh, do really appreciate you coming on, and, and thanks a lot, man. Thank you, man. Yeah, appreciate the support. My dad would cook for him, and all the guides live in this little – we called it the Mouse Mahal. I mean, it was just a little rundown shack. I'm kind of an addictive person. If I ever get on drugs, I feel like it's over. Because <laughs>